Bow in prayer with me, please. Lord God, um, we just offer our worship now as a sacrifice of praise unto you. Lord, we confess that so often the truth of our lives isn't lived in that reality that there's nothing better than you. But Lord, I thank you that you invite us into your presence and you invite us to just make that declaration in faith. Because Lord, if we've experienced you and if we've seen your love and goodness and faithfulness, we know there's nothing better than you. Oh Lord, forgive us for so often getting distracted by so many other things. But Lord, I thank you that when we gather in your name and make that declaration together, Lord, we give you all the praise and glory. Because Lord, nothing, no one is worthy of praise. You alone. So Lord, accept this, our humble little offering of worship. And I pray that your presence and reality will fill everyone seated here today and everyone listening online. So we pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let me add my good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Don, and as one of the pastors here, it's my privilege to uh, preach this morning's sermon and bring conclusion to this four-week series that we've been in called Invitation. And so this morning, it's called Invitation to Serve, and this is what we call our fourth discipleship step, or we also call it to serve and proclaim the gospel. So that's the invitation today, to serve and proclaim the gospel. Now, I'm going to go back in time for some of you. Now, how many of you remember a phenomenon in the 90s and early 2000s when lots of young people would go around wearing these bracelets that had WWJD on them? Does anyone remember that? Oh, good, some of you do. Did anyone have a WWJD bracelet? Oh, even better. Good on you. Now, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, I don't know if the picture's up there yet. Oh, there it is. Oh, that's pretty uh, hard to see, but you get the idea. Well, WWJD stands for What Would Jesus Do? And again, some thought that it was just kind of like a goofy uh, marketing, Christian marketing technique, or maybe it was a fabulous way to witness. I don't know, but it was a phenomenon. Anyway, what really hit, what surprised me this week was that I found out that that slogan, What Would Jesus Do?, actually goes all the way back to 1897 to an author pastor by the name of Charles Sheldon who wrote a book called In His Steps, 1897. Now, Pastor Kevin has the book in his office. Isn't that beautiful? Now, this is a 1935 edition, but this is, yeah, this is called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. Now, when I read about that, I also found it quite fascinating that this Charles Sheldon was one of the early leaders, early pastors in the movement that soon was called the Social Gospel Movement. Now, the Social Gospel Movement started around the year um, 1890 and basically impacted the Christian church and, and I would say much of the Western world all the way up to the 1930s. So what was the Social Gospel Movement? Well, one historian puts it this way. He said, movement leaders took Jesus' message, love thy neighbor. They took it into pulpits, published books, lectured across the country. Other leaders, mostly women, ran settlement houses designed to alleviate the suffering of immigrants. And overall, their mission was to draw attention to the problem, problems of poverty and inequality. 
And again, that's way back in that early part of the 20th century. Now, some of the fruit of the social gospel movement were things like um, uh, the abolition of child labor happened during that time, and actually the eight-hour work week happened during that time. Now, just to go on a little bit more of a history lesson, go back a hundred years and cross the pond over to Great Britain and meet evangelical Christian William Wilberforce, who was a dedicated Christian and also a member of parliament. And he devoted his life to the abolition of slavery. And it was in, uh, get the year right, 1807 when the Slave Trade Act was passed and, and slavery was abolished in the British Empire. And sadly, it took decades later in a civil war for that to happen in America. But William Wilberforce was a part of that. He's known for this quote. He said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. That quote really impacted me as I thought about it all week long. Now, I've talked a little bit about the past and a little bit about the social gospel movement. Now, for some of you, if you grew up like me in evangelical circles, and if you heard older people talk about the social gospel, or if you read anything about it, my guess would be that you would have a negative connotation, that you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have thought that the social gospel was a good thing. You would have associated it with a time in the church when the church went away from the foundation of God's word, turned to a more liberal way of thinking, and so to, to many, the social gospel in the evangelical world, they saw it as more of a negative thing, even though many, many incredibly good things happened. But I just kind of wanted you to, to know that because it's a big part of our history. And there are a lot of Christian leaders today that look at that social gospel era of the 20th, 20th century, and they compare it a lot to the movement today that a lot of people call the social justice movement. Now, um, as, we, as we kind of move into this, what I want to proclaim to you is that even though there's some real tension around this whole idea of how we respond and how we respond to the social justice movement and how we respond as evangelicals, there, there's definitely been a tension around it. For example, there's a prominent um, evangelical leader in the States who just recently said this. He said, evangelicalism's newfound obsession with the notion of social justice is a significant shift. And I'm convinced it's a shift that is moving many people, including some key evangelical leaders, off message and onto a trajectory that many other movements and denominations have taken before. Now, when you hear that, I'm sure some of you resonate with that statement, and I'm sure that some of you are really concerned when you hear that statement. This is what I would like to suggest to us today. I would, when he talks about obsession, I would agree with that part. I think that we can get obsessed with things and that can sometimes get us off message. But at the same time, just as negative as obsession, I would say would be apathy and avoidance. And I think that if our posture towards pain, suffering, and the social ills of our society is that, I think that's maybe even more problematic. But it's something that we really have to wrestle with. I would like to suggest to you today that through history, biblically, and that even in the church today, that this whole discipleship step we're talking about today, which is to serve and proclaim the gospel, 
that it's always been both. And it's always been a bit of a tension as the pendulum would swing over history. Is the gospel more about proclaiming the truth or is the gospel more about serving and living out the truth? And I would suggest again that the answer is both and yet history has shown us that that pendulum has swung many times and some think that maybe that we're in a time like that again. I think another thing though that's really important to keep in mind in contrast to the quote I just read you is that, yes, we as Mennonite Brethren, and if you're not aware, that's the name of the denomination of Forest Grove Community Church, so we're part of a a family of churches called the Mennonite Brethren, and our roots actually go back to what we call Anabaptist roots, which is a little bit of a different stream stream than the evangelical movement. So though we're kind of like cousins, we're also unique. And I just want to remind you of a part of our Mennonite Brethren Confession of Faith that Pastor Kevin actually put on the screen last week for us, And just in this issue to consider this quote again. So this is from Article 12 of our MB Confession of Faith. And it says this. Christians cooperate with others in society to defend the weak, care for the poor, and promote justice, righteousness, and truth. Believers witness witness against corruption, discrimination, and injustice. Exercise social responsibility, pay taxes, and obey all laws that do not conflict with the word of God. So again, that's our denominational perspective. So I'm suggesting again that both the spoken dimension and the lived dimension work together to proclaim and to declare this incredible gospel that Jesus gave his life for and that the early church and the church for 2,000 years has been proclaiming. Now, history and even a great confession of faith can give us some direction. But I think for most of you, you're saying, but what does the Bible say? What what does God's word have to say about this? I'd like us to just take a few examples from sort of a sweep of scripture to get an idea of God's heart and Jesus' heart and the early Christian's heart as they basically struggled through this tension of declaring God's heart or declaring God's gospel. So we'll start first in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the word justice is actually used 115 times. It comes from a specific Hebrew word that I won't try to pronounce, but you'll see it up there. And scholars suggest that the the basic meaning of this word that gets translated justice in the Old Testament is rectifying or restoring justice where it has been lost. Now, when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, a reoccurring theme over and over again is the injustice in the land. And when the religious leaders and the political leaders were being confronted by these prophets that were getting on their nerves all the time, they were often wondering, like, why isn't God blessing us? Why aren't things going better in our nation? And the prophets would often say, well, it's because you aren't caring for the poor and you aren't caring about the marginalized and you're just basically living with injustice and hoping I'll bless you. And the prophets had very scathing words to say to the nation when they neglected the weak and the marginalized in their society. Now, one great example of one prophet, and this is just one little example in in so much scripture, is the prophet Micah. And in Micah chapter 6, we'll read that together, he refers to, he refers again to this idea. The leaders are asking, why isn't God blessing us? Where is God in all this? What do we need to do to get things better again? What's going to make God happy so he'll bless us? And so I'll just read from verse 6 to 8 of Micah chapter 6. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And that really summarizes the message of what most of the prophets were saying in that time in Israel. In fact, scholars would say that much of Israel's struggle with living out their mission and living out the blessing of God was their disobedience to these issues and it actually led to their exile. And it was a, it was a key issue for them. Now, let's fast forward now to the New Testament and let's, and let's get a picture of Jesus. And Jesus starting his ministry. And if you were with us during our Matthew series a while back, we talked so much about the kingdom and how Jesus declared this upside-down kingdom that was so unexpected and so contrary to what the religious and everyone else thought it would be. Because Jesus didn't come to bring a brand new political kingdom to kick out the Romans and to give them power and and prestige again. That's what they all wanted. No, Jesus came with this upside-down kingdom where he talked about loving your enemies and doing good to those who persecute you and everything was almost the opposite of what they wanted to hear. So how did Jesus frame what his ministry would be about to the world that he was born into and the world that he was going to influence forever on? So I'll invite you to go to Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, we just get a little glimpse of the very beginning of Jesus' ministry when he kind of declared what his life and ministry was going to be about. And interestingly enough, he as well quotes an Old Testament prophet. So Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16, says this, Jesus went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Be there for that scene? I just love how tense that moment would have been as Jesus declared his mission. Now, when we think about Jesus' mission there, he, he talked about caring for the poor, prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. Again, a similar and a fulfilled mis- message that came from the prophets. Now, sometimes when we talk about the scripture, there's actually a debate over, is Jesus talking about physical realm needs, or is Jesus talking about people's spiritual needs. Now, that's an interesting debate, and I've had it many times, because like most of us pastors, we love to find ways to make these passages just a little less pointed (laughs) as to how difficult they are to be completely obedient to. And it's sometimes easier to spiritualize things than to actually just see the plain message of what Jesus is trying to say. 
Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't come to deal with the issues of spiritual poverty and that he didn't come to deal with spiritual blindness and spiritual oppression. Of course he did. But I think, again, isn't he talking about both? Wasn't that Jesus' mission and the mission of the early church and the mission of the church all through time is that it's both. Jesus came to address the spiritual needs, to proclaim his message with words and truth, but also with dedicated service and caring about the marginalized and those that needed justice in the world. It was never meant to be two separate things. It was always meant to be both and together. And that's what Jesus taught. And then in the early church, so we fast forward a little bit to the days of the early church. Did you know that already in the days of the early church, the pendulum was going back and forth? There was those that were passionate and saying, it's all about faith. It's all about getting the truth right of who Jesus is and what he claimed. And if we have faith, we're saved. And then those that were going, well, that's good. But if, but if we don't back up our faith with acts of service and with acts that actually transform our society and people around us, what good is it? And that debate was already there in the early church. And that pendulum swing has gone through history. Now, to just look at it a little, little more closely, um, this happened in James chapter 2. Now, one prominent scripture author that wrote so many of the letters that we have in the Bible very much gave a strong message of faith. Awesome message. And yet another disciple named James, who wrote the book of James, commented on this and brought some balance. So James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And then he gives an example from their history, and then down in verse 26, he sums up by saying, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So the tension was there in the early church as the tension's been through history. What is the gospel? And how do we declare it both in word and deed? I want to read for you a quote by a speaker, author, pastor, church planter, a gentleman named Michael Frost, and he puts it this way. He said, I'd like us to recover the biblical idea that word and deed are interdependent. Make sure you here see that, interdependent, not independent. Interdependent activities of the church. Instead of evangelism and justice being seen as opposing each other on a seesaw, Think of them as two interlocking clogs. And as you crank one clog, it sets the other one turning as well. I think this is so important for us in this time, in this era, uh, with this tension. I think of all of us wanting to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ, to be declared with boldness and to transform our lives and transform our culture and our nation. I think that would be in all of our hearts. 
And yet again, I think the scriptures and history and our own confession of faith show so much that it's both. So how do we respond? If serving and justice, proclaiming and evangelism are partners in this great gospel that we've been entrusted to share. My heart is heavy in many ways as I, as I think about this message. And this is why. One of the things that breaks my heart so much over and over again these days, both in our church, I'll say, and also in our greater culture, it just seems like there's so much polarization. It just seems like we're getting so divided into camps that we're putting each other in boxes really quickly and we're saying, these people are like this and we define them and judge them. Or these people are like this and we define them and judge them. And it's, it's just so sad in our culture when it feels like, where is honest, open, and friendly debate? It feels like we've just resorted to feeling either morally superior or just feeling angry and shouting at each other. Should that be the, the way followers of Jesus are? Should that be our response in church, even when we have some disagreements over some issues that we're really passionate about? I'm all for passion. But can we not let this divide, this social justice versus evangelism divide, can we say no to the division that can split us up? What I want to call us to today Remember what Micah said, how, simp, how that, this, that simplicity of do justice, love kindness, walk humbly? Can we bring our views and our passions with humility even to our brothers and sisters that we disagree with or maybe see things in a different way? You know, one of the legacies of our lead pastor, Bruce Enns, and sorry, Bruce, for singling, singling you out here, is that we've often joked with Bruce, but he's said it himself, that he is, he is the pastor of ditches. And that doesn't mean that he's had a lot of accidents and has been in the ditch a lot, although we won't comment on that. But Bruce has had a ministry here of calling us out of the ditches. And basically what he means by that is when we get to the extremes, to where we're not listening to each other more, maybe, we're, maybe in this issue, if we're on the obsession side, or maybe if we're just on the apathetic, neglectful, hope these things go away side, that neither of those are the ditches that we want to be in as followers of Jesus. And if I can just appeal to you from my heart, from Bruce's heart, from our heart as a spiritual body, can we avoid those extreme ditches and walk together as followers of Jesus? Can we understand how important and life-giving and transformational this gospel is and that we need both and we need to be passionate about both and we need to bless those that are maybe a little bit more passionate about how they might express the, the, the sharing of the gospel in, in evangelistic and verbal ways and also those that are just heart, hearts are broken about the injustice and the suffering and the inequality in the world and they want to address those issues in the name of Jesus. Can we not judge them, but instead actually be inspired by their passion and just keep encouraging them and saying, keep Jesus central to it? Because if we can work these together, that's the power of the gospel that is supposed to transform the world. That's what Jesus died for. That's what Jesus modeled. That's our call. Amen. So that's how I hope and pray we can respond. And you know, as I, when I think of our congregation... You know, I can get so excited after all of the grieving, this is now where I get excited. I look at our congregation, 
and I just see the passion to serve. And, and it happens in so many places. Just a few examples I thought of. I know that our congregation really loves and respects the ministry in downtown Saskatoon called the Bridge on 20th. And I think the reason that we respect that ministry is that they're very strong in both proclaiming the gospel and serving, serving the poor and the marginalized in our city. And that those, when those come together, that's the power of the gospel. And I think that's why many of you respect that ministry. I meet people in our congregation who serve with MCC. It's called Mennonite Central Committee. And they, they serve with their different agencies where they're just passionate about the things that they can do and make to help the poor and marginalized in our city and around the world. And they love it because that's a part of them declaring the gospel of Jesus. We have seniors in our congregation that, that Dolores leads that, that make mittens that they give to inner city kids. And they're, again, they're doing serving things, but in serving, they're proclaiming the gospel. You know, many of you love to, to serve in camps and serve in the various ministries of our church because it gives you such an opportunity for both, right? There's all of that practical serving that shares the gospel, and yet there's also opportunities to speak of Jesus and his love and how I'm... And, and it comes together. And I see that in, in so many of the ministries all across our church. Even when I think about missions trips, and hasn't that been disappointing how COVID has meant we haven't had missions trips in a while. But if you've ever been on one, you know that often when you go on a missions trip, you don't know the language, so you're actually not doing that much proclaiming. But are you not sharing the gospel when you go to support the missionaries and serve the people and help? Even if we can't speak the language, we can still proclaim and declare the gospel together. So again, I just want to share with you how it's exciting that we live this and do this all the time. So let's not allow the nuances to divide us and to get us off track to the beauty of this gospel. And you know, even when I think of all of you in your settings in life, where you work, where you go to school, the family environments you're in, all the community involvements or sports things you do, there's so many ways that we're involved in our communities and our workplaces and you know, in a lot of those places, you can't stand there with the Four Spiritual Laws book and asking people if you can lead them through it to verbally lead them to Jesus. But what do you do? You want to live out the peace and the love and the reality of who Jesus is in your life. And you want to serve other people, not to make yourself look good and to point to you, but because you want to point them to Jesus. That's serving, that's, that's living the gospel. It's word and deed together. And the Holy Spirit gives us opportunities at times to speak. But again, it's both end. And I know you're doing so much of that. I kind of encourage you. Let's keep on. Because this is the message that transforms lives. So as I conclude in prayer, can I encourage us again? Let's not judge. Let's not put people in boxes. Let's not hang out in the ditches either with offense or anger. But let's come together. Let's be the body of Christ and let's proclaim and live out a full or a whole gospel because that's the one Jesus died for. And my brothers and sisters, keep serving. You're serving in so many areas. Keep serving with heart and passion and make sure Jesus is always the central reason why. And we can keep proclaiming the gospel together. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your incredible message and that you gave your life and that you died to give us freedom and to set the captives free. And I thank you, Jesus, for the salvation 
that we can all come to in your name and because what you have done. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that your heart and your mission was to transform your creation, this world you love. And Lord, I pray that you would anoint us and strengthen us to be your agents, to be your hands and feet, and to be your mouthpiece. Oh Lord, I pray against anything that wants to bring division in your church around the centrality of your gospel. And Lord, I pray that you will bring us into unity, that transformation of heart and life will happen in the name of Jesus. Empower and unify your church, I pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll, if they'll come up and join me. And I just want to lead us in, uh, in a bit of a response before we sing. And that is to both invite you and call you to a week of prayer and fasting that we want to declare as a church for this, for this next week leading up to Thanksgiving. You'll see the times on the, on the screen above. Now, where this came from was a little confession here. Um, I'm going to be really honest and vulnerable here and say, I've actually had trouble sleeping lately. I've had many nights of worry and sadness about our church because we're at such a critical time of leadership transition. And you know, some, some of that worry is not good and it needs to be confessed and brought to Jesus. And yet sometimes waking up early also then says, gives you the opportunity to pray and to like in that place of worry say, Lord, you need to lead. You need to be the one that we put our hope in. You need to be the one that we trust. And so one of those mornings that I just kept being stirred in my spirit, that this, this line kept coming through my mind, this line of declare a holy fast and call a sacred assembly. And, I, and, I kept, and I'm thinking to myself, where is that from? Of course, I had to get up and look it up, and I found that it was in Joel chapter 1, verse 14. And Joel says, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So Forest Grove Community Church, gathered here at Attridge online and the other sites, can we as your leaders boldly call you to a week of prayer and fasting for your church, for our church? At this critical crossroads we're at, there, there can be times of fear and there can be even times of despair and uncertainty. So what do we do in those times? That's the time to get on our knees. That's the time to cry out to the Lord and say, God, Lord God, help us, lead us, give us discernment and show us the way forward. And I just invite you, you see the times? I invite you to consider something that you may fast. That doesn't have to be food. There can be other ways that, that you can fast to, in a sense, just declare your dedication and to declare to God, hey, this is important. This is important to me. This is important to us that we come together as a church and pray. So there are the times you might, you might be praying on your own. I encourage you and challenge you there. And if you're able to come to any of those times um, listed up there, we invite you as we pray together, fall on our faces before the Lord, seek his face and cry out to him. So that's the call as we lead up to Thanksgiving. And, you know, just to encourage you, our, our, our leaders, our volunteers all through the church and our staff are all working hard and with passion to see ministry and the good things happen here at Forest Grove. 
there, there's much good happening. Our, our leadership um, council is, is working hard towards bringing in a transitional pastor to lead us through this time. So there's lots of really good things to be hopeful for. But it's also a time when we need to come together in unity and come together in prayer. So as you consider that, let that be part of your response today. And now let's join with the worship team and respond in song as we respond in our hearts as well. God bless you.